Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Cut Through Vine for April 30th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show here in about 20 minutes. Uh, Dr. Bill Snyder will be joining us for, I believe, the fourth time on the Cut Through Vine, uh, just one of the most renowned political experts over the past few decades, still writes for the Hill um, periodical and so, or uh, paper, and so he'll be joining us talking a lot about kind of some national topics um, here in just a bit, but until then, we've got all kind of things to discuss. Uh, we just kind of had to pick and choose there's so many things going on, but we're going to start off with a story we've discussed a little bit, but now it's actually going to at some point near enter the courtroom phase. Uh, Disney, the Walt Disney Corporation, is suing Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida for the changes to the Reedy Creek Agreement. Um, if you don't know about that, there was when the Disney uh, decided to build in Orlando back in the 1960s, um, they set aside all this area around where the park was going to be. The Reedy Creek Improvement District at the time, it was pretty sparsely populated. And um, it would be where Disney kind of could control things. Their statement was they didn't want to be like Disneyland where, you know, low-rent motels, this is their words, would come in. And so they would be responsible for the water services, the fire services, the trash pickup, the road improvements within this set-aside area. Now, I think for a while that people may have criticized, saying, well, how can you make this area under the auspices of a corporation? Well, I found out this past week that there are other places in Florida that do this. Um, around Daytona Speedway, they do this. And in the villages, they do this. So while one could criticize this practice, this practice is in other places in Florida, but Governor Ron DeSantis has singled out this one run by Disney because of his claims that they did not respect, um, you know, some of his don't gay, say gay initiatives and other things they've done. Um, and so they're going to they're suing Ron DeSantis and going to court. Catherine, how surprised were you by Disney's corporation's decision to actually take uh, the governor of the state of Florida to? to Court. Well, you know, they tried. I, I did quite a bit of reading about this this week, and they tried. They've been trying since all these things have, you know, occurred. It's been over the course of, a, of about a year, I guess. They've been trying to negotiate. They've been trying to make it work. And finally, in a statement, they said, we just had no other choice but to take them to court. And um, the interesting thing is they're – 
they're going they're they're doing they have two um, points in of law that they're focusing on. The first one is um, First Amendment because they have freedom. They claim they have freedom of speech as a as, as a company, just like individuals do. But they're also using this rarely used clause in the Constitution about contracts and governments not uh, interfering with corporate contracts. So the the thing about this is that, you know, I think we all have learned over the years that uh, well-funded corporations, which I assure you Disney is very wealthy, will find the very best lawyers and they will not stop. There, I mean, they 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 will dig in and uh, and and make make their point. And from what I've read, the people are saying they do have a good point. We might not, you know, we don't. We might not agree with some of the things that they're claiming, honestly. But since we don't like Ron DeSantis, I don't like Ron DeSantis, and I think Disney is in general a pretty good corporation. Uh, Bravo to them for going after DeSantis. Is my my uh, opinion. But it's yeah, very, and, and this. Go ahead. It's a very unusual clause that they're working on, that hasn't been used in decades. Yes, and that's why I brought up that these um, improvement districts are in action in other places in Florida, because if Ron DeSantis wanted to say he wanted to get rid of all of these because he found them to be kind of circumventing the will of the people, and you're going to blanketly get rid of how many ever there are in the state. I just mentioned two other notable ones. I think that is a philosophical discussion you can have, but when you single out one and don't touch the other two because of political motivations, that becomes a major issue. Tim, is it any surprise to you that he picked out Disney and didn't go after um, the villages, Daytona Speedway, and others that may be on the books. No, it's not. And you know what the politics are of, of NASCAR, and you know what the politics are in the villages, which is one of the most Republican areas in the United States. So they weren't about to do that. And uh, got to remember, this suit is actually filed against the governor and his oversight board that he handpicked. And uh, a lady by the name of Meredith Ivey is also named in the suit. She is the secretary of the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity. Um, This new board, you know, voted to invalidate an agreement that was struck between Disney and the, the former oversight board earlier this year that, bypass most of what DeSantis and the legislature did to um, strip Disney of its uh, oversights that had been put in place since the late 60s with the Reedy Creek Development uh, Company that you mentioned. And within minutes of the new board voting to invalidate that agreement, well, Disney filed the suit. They they were they were going to do it right then. That's what that's what sent them over to do it. Uh, so no, no nothing that has happened has surprised me so far. They are a major corporation with a you know a lot of power, 
Catherine has mentioned, they have the best lawyers available to them in the country, and they will, you know, they'll st- they'll stick it out in the courts. They they will. Uh, I hope the governor and and that board and and everyone is ready for the long haul because that's exactly about what they're going to get. Yes. Now, now my understanding is when he first, you know, wanted to revoke this, and somebody pointed out, well, you'll have to provide all of these services that Disney's been paying for in this area, and it was going to cost millions. And I don't know if that's tens or hundreds, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, it, it was going to be this massive amount of money for the taxpayers of Florida, and so he backed off. Then he tried to appoint this board. Then the board wanted to do what he wanted to do, and all this has kept unfolding. So now the lawsuit happens. Catherine, any idea how Ron DeSantis responds? Does he just go back and say, okay, we're just going to go back to like it was circa you know, 2019, 2020, whatever, and we're just going to um, – go back to business as usual, or is he going to try to stand up and, and make another move? I don't know. I think he's, uh, like, um, what do they say, ahead of the skis? Like, I don't think he realized how deep those pockets at Disney are and um, what the response would be from the public. And from fellow Republicans, I might add. Um, I mean, this is a huge employer and a huge, I mean, Disney. It's not like we're not talking about Six Flags here. <laughs> I mean, it's Disney World. You know, it's the, it's the place that, you know, every, uh, I mean, maybe not every, but most, most every child in America wants to go to and most every family in America plans to go to at some point. So, it's uh, And it's not as simple as saying, oh, we'll just go to, like I said, but we'll just go to Six Flags. No, it's not like that. So it's really a unique uh, destination and very, very, um, what's the word, a, a, a huge income draw and, uh, all, and all the taxes and all the, I mean, it's just, he really like got like I said. He's ahead of his skis. He's in deep now, and I don't know how he gets out of it without losing face. And I don't think he's one to uh, take kindly to losing face. Yeah, I saw a chart uh, that said that Publix is the number one um, employer, Walmart's number two, Disney's number three, and the wage per hour at Disney is. Four to five dollars more per hour uh, for the average worker, um, or across the board at Disney. Um, oh yeah, so it's not even close. And then of course that adds more economic economic development and everything else. And so it's uh, a huge thing yeah, it's here. Not, now, it's Tim, not just uh, Disney. It's all the supporting businesses, all the you know, uh, all the hotels that are not run by Disney, all the gas stations, restaurants, all, all that. So. Yeah, and um, now Tim uh, apparently Ron DeSantis also threatened if he couldn't do certain things, he would build a jail next to Walt Disney World. Um, oh, I mean, oh. if he were to do something <laughs> like that, how would the Florida voters react? Because eventually, that's who's going to have to decide the fate here. 
he, he's got some political war going on, trying to make you know get him cachet across the country. But at some point, the Florida voters have to know that you know that kind of petty move to really kill the golden goose uh, just makes no sense. Yeah, well, he's not facing the Florida voters unless he runs for the U.S. Senate. And uh, you mentioned it. He's trolling for issues and enemies for political reasons. He's purposely picking this fight in order to advance himself in national politics. Uh, It it, it is very questionable at best whether or not that's working because Disney – is going to sell it, and not only in the courts, but in the opinion that this is simply an abusive government uh, overreaching, attempting to use its power to retaliate against a private business, and for no reason other than the fact that this business voiced an opinion of opposition to a piece of legislation passed by the legislature and supported by the governor, and it once again highlights the fact that on the national political level, this man has a very thin skin. He just simply does not take it as well as he dishes it out. And don't think a guy like Trump hasn't noticed that. And Trump is going to stick the knife in and twist it. He's going to dig and dig and make fun of him, and basically, I think, in a national setting, Donald Trump would just eat this guy alive. Uh, yes, and we, and, and, we you know, talked... Yeah, go ahead. That, no, that that's pretty much it. Yeah, and we've talked about that, and I'm sure we'll talk more, and we're actually going to talk some to Dr. Snyder about that um, question as well. Now, let's talk about Disney. Uh, This past week, after all this went down, Nikki Haley said, hey, you could move Walt Disney World to Florida. We may be Republicans, but we're not petty Republicans. I'm sure we could look at some of the Florida – I mean, I'm sorry, South Carolina legislation and put that in doubt at times. But um, let's get into that. People said, hey, they could move Disney. They could move Disney. I don't think that's realistic. Catherine, what could Disney do? in the short term before this case works its way through the legal system? Um, I suspect that they won't do anything. They'll just fight it and, you know, keep doing what they do. And probably maybe they'll be able to get a um, – uh, I don't know what you call it. Maybe they'll be able to stop the um, the the commission from from you know removing their um, what their control over the um, area. I don't know, but I don't think they're, they're I don't think they're you know it's a, it's going to be a long case. It's going to take forever, and it's going to cost a fortune. And that's the other thing. The Florida taxpayers are paying that bill too and it's going to be a fortune you know millions and millions of dollars in court in legal fees i'm sure um but yeah i don't know what they could do in the short term 
await while they await the case. Yeah. Well, I guess they have the money to the library books. They're not yeah. moving. They're not going to move. They'll 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 outlive Ron DeSantis for sure. I mean, they'll wait. Yeah, Tim, um, what could the recourse in the short term be for Disney? Well, uh, what they're already making rumblings. They had plans for expansion that in the next decade or so would have uh, added more attractions along with 13,000, I believe it is, additional jobs. Now, that's something tangible they could do. They can just put a hold on that. While that, this, that's a good uh, point. While this plays out, and I believe that's exactly what they will do, because once again, we're not only in the courts, we're in the court of public opinion. If if you remove a chance for fifteen for 13,000 people to go to work for them, and you already gave the quotes as to how they match up against the other two biggest employers in the state, that's real money, that's real jobs, that's real people uh, in in an area, the Orlando area, that has grown massively, almost exclusively because of Disney and its expansion over the years. So that, that will get people's attention. Yeah, I don't think they can move what is existing. One, it would cost so much money. And then also, I mean, there's only a few places in America that are warm enough year-round. Like, you know, people say, oh, well, Georgia, the politics is better. Well, Georgia on the northern end, closer to Atlanta where the population is, still has winter. North Carolina has winter. South Carolina has winter. Um, So, therefore, I think the play would be, like you were talking about this expansion, maybe looking at – new expansions to possibly go to Disneyland to beef it up. Because my understanding is Disneyland is just doesn't really hold a candle to Disney World as far as the scope and the size. And that may be by design because so much more of the population lives on the East Coast. But this could be a chance to enhance it because, for instance, there's a Universal Studios in Orlando and there's one in Los Angeles. And the one in Los Angeles is actually a little better than the one in Orlando. So a different corporation can, you know, do more in California. So this would be a chance, like that little, you know, that little bit of expansion, send that part to Los Angeles to show, hey, we mean business. You could still come back a decade from now and and do the expansion in the Orlando Park as well. Next thing, I know they film a lot of TV uh, episodes through ABC and, and Disney and whatnot. Some of that production could move elsewhere because that's not tied to Orlando. But uh, we are so excited now about welcoming on to the Kudzu Vine for, I believe, the fourth time, Dr. Bill Snyder. Welcome, Dr. Snyder. Thank you. Sorry I was delayed, but I lost your number. <laughs> uh, well, you found it right on time. You didn't have to tell on yourself. You were perfect timing. And it, okay. it segues even better because we've been talking about Florida, and we've been talking a lot about what's going on in the state, but we're going to let you talk about nationally um, oh Ron DeSantis has not yet launched his presidential campaign, but the shadow campaign started out with some decent numbers. I don't know if he really led Donald Trump a lot, but in the past few months, it has just gone down, down, down. 
Why is Ron yeah. DeSantis struggling so? Because Donald Trump is going up, up, up. He is uh, an alternative to Trump for a lot of Republicans who like the MAGA philosophy and like Donald Trump, but they're concerned that he's not electable. And Ron DeSantis is presenting himself as an electable version of Donald Trump. But, you know, Donald Trump's answer to that is very simple. I'm here. Why don't you vote for the real thing? And that's what a lot of Republicans are doing. Yes. I I even heard that um, Ron DeSantis is somebody that's been to an Ivy League college um, and that he's – but still he's not very likable as well. That Some of his problems are that he might be too smart or intellectual for the Republican Party. Well, he is a graduate of Yale and Harvard, uh, and he is very smart. He, I went to Harvard, and I know a lot of people there who really didn't like Harvard, who didn't like the liberalism of the faculty, and apparently Ron DeSantis is of that, of that uh, persuasion. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't like the political correctness, uh, <clears throat> the liberalism of that you find at the Ivy League University, but he is a very bright guy. He appeals to a lot of Republicans with college degrees. Trump does not. Trump's basic support comes from Republicans who didn't go to college conservatives who didn't go to college. There are a lot of college-educated conservatives as well, and they're much more attracted to Ron DeSantis as a more respectable version of Donald Trump, and let me add, uh, a more electable version uh, than Donald Trump. Yes. Well, let me ask about Donald Trump directly. Um, You know, the one thing I thought that would be the unpardonable sin in the Republican Party would be to lose um, Donald Trump yes. lost. He really lost the popular vote in 2016, too, for that matter. But yet Republic, the Republican base does not appear to be want to move off of him. They still see him as a winner. Um, is there anything that would cause Donald Trump's campaign to derail between now and um, the convention? Well, first of all, uh, he did not win a majority or even a plurality of the vote in 2016, but he got elected. He got elected by the rules. And if you talk to his supporters, as I have done around the country, you'll discover that they refuse to acknowledge that he lost the 2020 election. Their firm conviction is the election was stolen. So they don't see Trump as a loser at all, even though he, when he led the Republican Party in the 2018 midterm and when he was the most influential Republican in the 2022 midterm, both of those results were disappointing to Republicans. It's kind of hard to see him as a winner. Yet Republicans do, and they refuse to believe that he could possibly lose. Um, so that's a problem that DeSantis is already having. Yes, and one final question about the Republican primary. Um, I understand that you know Donald Trump's going to run again, and there's got to be an anti-Trump, and a lot of people thought that would be Ron DeSantis. But yet there are so many other candidates getting in the race, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, um, Vivek uh, Viswani, I don't have his name right in front of me, and I think there's even others. Why are all these folks signing up for what appears to be a quixotic mission to face Trump and uh, for the Republican nomination? Well, first of all, you see Biden is vulnerable, which he is. Uh, his popularity is not very strong, so they think there's an opportunity here for a Republican. And on top of that, they believe that Donald Trump has had his chance and that he really is unelectable, and the Republicans can wake up one day and see that. They hope that will happen. So all of them are really running to be an alternative to Trump, but it's not clear that Republicans want an alternative to Trump. 
he has a battle cry that stirs the blood when he talks about, you know, I am your retribution. I am your justice. I am your savior. The Republicans really respond to that. Yes. So, so basically the, the idea is the Republicans can come to, will come to their senses, the Republican base, have these people not watched Jordan Klepper and uh, Walter Matheson and other folks that have gone out to these events with the Republican base? Yeah, uh, they're all really – Donald Trump owns the Republican Party, uh, and that's, that's as true now as it was in the past. One thing that I think could really damage him is if he is indicted and in some way found guilty of uh, trying to uh, alter the election result in Georgia. That's an unforgivable sin, and if it's, uh, unless the, uh, there's evidence that the uh, indictment if – if there is an indictment that it was manipulated somehow by his enemies – I think it will be very hard to nominate or certainly hard to elect a candidate who tried to interfere with a Democratic election. Uh, the paying off of a prostitute in New York is not an unpardonable sin. It's at least understandable. But trying to alter an election return in Georgia, that is unforgivable. Yes, and we'll be watching that case. I'm going to pass it to Catherine, who will pass it to Tim for more questions. Catherine? Hey, thank you for being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. We always look forward right. to having you on the show. I want to ask you about um, President Biden. Um, I, I mean, I know I'm uh, I'm biased because I like the man. I think he's done a really amazing job sort of um, fixing a lot of the problems that we've had that we that were brought on by Trump, both internationally and uh, and nationally. But as you said earlier, he is uh, he is struggling with approval ratings. And what do you think that as we move into the twenty twenty four election period, what do you think he has to do to sort of firm up his popularity and hopefully win? Well, I don't think he's going to change in any radical way. He certainly is not going to get younger, which is the one complaint you often hear. How are we going to elect a man who's 82 years old on Inauguration Day and won't leave office until he's 86? That is very troubling to a lot of Americans. We've never had a president of that age, and very few countries have had a leader of that age, except maybe a few African countries. But uh, the idea of an 80-something-year-old president is really uh, very disturbing to a lot of Americans. But I tell you, the one thing that is most troubling to Joe Biden is this, recession. If we have a recession in this country in the next year or so, and it really is not over until very close to the election of 2024, I don't think he has a chance to win. Democrats find recessions unforgivable. There have been 11 recessions since 1950 in this country. Everyone but one of them has started under a Republican president. The only one that didn't was 1980 under Jimmy Carter when we had a recession, and he paid a price for it. If there is a recession of any magnitude, of any serious magnitude in the next year or so, uh, then I think Biden will pay the price. We all will, unfortunately, it sounds like. Um, Do you think that another Democrat running could make that different if if, uh, Biden, for some unknown reason, were to decide to not run? Is there another Democrat... Yeah, there is one other Democrat, and I think uh, that's the next one on the list. Uh, any, any Democrat can run, and they may all see an opportunity. It's likely to be a, a contest. 
but the nomination will very likely go to Kamala Harris. She is his chosen successor. She's the vice president of the United States. She's a black woman of of foreign descent. She's something new and different. And now she has an issue, which could be a very important issue in 2024, the abortion rights issue. She's been very outspoken on that. She's a woman. And a lot of Democrats will say, it's time we had a woman who's outspoken on abortion rights, which are being threatened. Uh, Voters around the country are really outraged by what the Supreme Court did. I mean, you can't take rights away from Americans without a backlash. You can't take right. gun rights away from people, and you can't take abortion rights away from people. And that would be Kamala Harris's issue. Well, this brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, a little bit off topic. But um, we, we've seen now two Republicans in the last week uh, go against their state legislatures uh, and vote and, and uh not vote in favor of abortion, one of of abortion restrictions. One in South Carolina, I think the other one was in Nebraska. Um, I think so. Do you do you think that um, do you think there could be a fissure in the Republican Party around this? If or are those two people going to just be, um, you know, basically pushed out of the party? Um, and not well, elected I, or whatever. I think those two. I think the latter would be the more likely case. They'll be ostracized within the party. Now, the question is, will it open up a division in the party between uh, traditional Republicans, like country club Republicans, and the religious right, which is very strongly identified with the anti-abortion issue? Uh, that could split the party wide open, but I, I doubt that it, that it will. I think that the, the division on abortion will somehow be covered over. <coughs> Uh, Republicans are just going to have to live with it, uh, and they're going to have to reach some sort of consensus that abortion rights can be restricted and limited, but not obliterated. You can't simply make all abortions illegal. I've looked at abortions uh, on, in public opinion for, for decades now, for the last 50 years, and all the polls say the same thing. People do not like the idea that abortion can be used as birth control. They think it should be available in cases of extreme emergency like rape or incest or birth defect in the child or a threat to the life or health of the mother, those, those kinds of conditions justify abortion. But what they don't like is abortion used as birth control. Sooner or later, Republicans are going to wake up and see that there is a line there, and they're going to try to define that line. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that um, I, I think there's, very few people who get abortions who think of them as birth control. But it is something that a lot of people claim um, that is happening. That's, that's, that's but, not true of a lot of religious people who are opposed to abortion. I once had a discussion with a Catholic bishop on this issue. Let me give you some advice. Never have a debate with a Catholic bishop. You will lose. But the bishop, <laughs> made an interest, the bishop, huh. the bishop did make an interesting point, which, which I often think about. He said, for people in my church, abortion is like slavery. It's something that must not be tolerated by a civilized society. I will never say, personally would never own a slave, and I am opposed to slavery. But if you want to go out, buy, go out and buy yourself a slave, by all means, it's your right. No, he said. Our church says that cannot be tolerated in a civilized society. We think of abortion as something like slavery. It cannot be allowed. 
Okay. I I, I uh, accept that bishop's right to believe that, and yep. wh- wh- whatever Catholics also believe it. Well, I'm going to pass yeah. it to Tim. Thank you so much. As okay, always, very insightful. Thank you. Go ahead, Tim. Good evening. Good evening, Professor. Uh, thank you for being on with us uh, again. And, and before I go to some uh, of the domestic political news of the day, I, I want to ask you a question uh, about uh, some foreign affairs that you've written about. You, we we have many on the right in this country, uh, especially on the right, that have embraced the idea that we should cease our involvement in the war in Ukraine, essentially ceding it to the Russians. Mm-hmm. Is this a throwback to the America First movement of the late 30s? Yes, it's exactly what it is. But it's beyond just the late 30s. The United States was it was an isolationist power for almost 200 years, from the founding of the Republic until we entered World War One, which wasn't until the last year of that war. We have an isolationist history, and there's still a lot of popular support for isolationism. Let the rest of the world take care of itself. They, know, they don't appreciate or understand what America wants to do, and it's a waste of money and time to try to rescue the world. That changed radically after World War II. What happened was the British gave up their world leadership position because they had exhausted themselves and spent all their money in World War II. So they said, we cannot contain communism, which had become a serious threat after Stalin was a victor in World War II. So they said somebody else is going to have to take over the world leadership role. And what happened is Harry Truman, in 1947, gave a speech before Congress in which he said, the United States will assume that role. Whenever there's a threat to international order, like the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, or a threat to humanitarian values, like what was happening in Kosovo with ethnic cleansing, If the United States doesn't do anything, nothing happens. Outrages will occur. That was the world leadership role that the United States has held since the end of World War II. A lot of Americans aren't happy with that. They think it's costly and the rest of the world doesn't appreciate us. We should just give it up. That is a very dramatic division, and we're seeing it happening right now in the Republican Party between the older Republican Party, led by people like Mitt Romney and George W. Bush, and the uh, more radical right types led by Donald Trump see no point in, the, in continuing that world leadership role. That's going to be a very big debate from now on. Yeah, it's one thing to see uh, the Republican Party in factions because of it, but what about generally speaking in the country? It, it, do you have a feeling that we might be drifting toward isolationism again as a society? Americans don't like foreign entanglements that don't have a resolution. And that looks like Ukraine. We don't know how it's going to end. It looks like it could go on forever. Americans like to win. And if we are supporting Ukraine, we want to see them win. And the longer this takes, the more expensive it is. Again, Americans are putting up with it, mostly because Americans are not being killed. If we had had troops over there, the demand to get out of Ukraine would be overwhelming. But Americans at the moment, thank God, are not being killed. But the fact is we want to see some success. We want to see some resolution. We're very impatient about these things. And so the result is that mm-hmm. Americans are losing patience with our support for Ukraine 
and they wonder, how is this all going to end and when will it end? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I appreciate that. Now, what I'd like to do now is turn and, and ask you uh, a couple of general questions about the political state of the country now. You you have stated yourself that we are a politically segregated country. That's true. That doesn't leave much room for moderates, does it? Are they an, an endangered species, or do they even really exist in any meaningful way anymore? Well, there are moderates in the electorate, but they just don't have many political spokespersons or leaders. Uh, of a moderate nature. I mean, someone like Mitt Romney in the Republican Party, but he's regarded as out of date by most uh, younger pro-Trump Republicans. Uh, the Democrats have a large progressive wing. There are still a lot of, mo- of, of moderate Democrats who are trying their best to hold on. Um, Joe Biden is probably the most representative of them. He is a moderate Democrat, and if he succeeds and gets reelected, then I think the moderates can make a comeback in the Democratic Party. Biden is the leader of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Um, the, the radical, the, the more progressive wing of the party has not enjoyed a lot of success recently. Mm-hmm. But um, how do moderates in both parties make a comeback, say, at the legislative arc? congressional level when they run into this extreme gerrymandering? Well, the extreme gerrymandering is a problem because it creates one-party districts. A lot of, uh-huh. a lot of Republican districts where the Republican, the, the, the electorate is all Republican. And the result is the, the electorate is controlled by people who want a real, a real traditional Republican, someone who's on the right. Uh, and that's uh-huh. true of Democratic districts in the inner city as well. Uh, they're not going to tolerate people who are too moderate and too conciliatory. We are in a point of polarization in the United States, and it's very hard to reach across the party line. This all started 50 or 60 years ago when Democrats started to become uniformly liberal, and Republicans, really starting with Barry Goldwater, became uniformly conservative. There's no more room anymore for a Dwight Eisenhower kind of Republican. And he is the time with so, contempt by conservatives. So do you see any change in the future for the extreme political polarization we now experience, or, or do you think this is a long-term phenomena that we're just going to have to live with from now on? I think we'll have to live with it for a while. What we need is the emergence of a moderate leader, probably two of them, one in each party, but you need someone who's a heroic figure, like Eisenhower, someone who can rise mm-hmm. above petty partisanship. I don't see anyone on the horizon right now who fills that role. It, it could happen. Uh, often they mm-hmm. come from outside of politics, the way Eisenhower did. It used to be, in this country, we, the country, when it was in a crisis, was often rescued by military leaders and, and generals and heroes who had won a war. We haven't won a war in a long time in this country. Uh, there's just not any heroes. Ross Perot tried to be run, one. He was a businessman who was had remarkable success in business. People had a lot of confidence in him. And he was, in fact, a kind of moderate. He had some ties to Republicans, some to Democrats. He was a problem solver. But, you know, he, he did unusually well for a third-party or an independent candidate. He got almost 20% of the vote. 
but he still couldn't win because our system punishes people who are not uh, part of the Republican or Democratic parties. So mm-hmm. I think it would be difficult. What you need to do is you have to find an extraordinary personality who has appealed beyond the party faithful in both parties. And I don't see one like that right now. Hmm. Speaking of wars, I saw an interview recently that you gave three years ago, and you stated that we are the most divided we have been as a nation since the Civil War. Right. And that was, that was of course, in, in an election year, right before the presidential election of 2020 with Donald Trump still president. So has anything in the last three years changed your assessment, or are we still at that point? I think we still are. In fact, we've got more and more people talking about a ridiculous possibility. They're saying, could we go into a civil war? I'm asked that all the time. Can you imagine uh-huh. California and New York invading Florida and Texas? I mean, it's unbelievable. But there are people who really are talking seriously about something like that or about separation of the blue states and the red states. They're beginning to talk seriously about that, although how it would happen is nobody could imagine. But the the intensity of the division has only grown. Uh, The hostility has only grown. And it's tearing us apart as a country. And in many ways, it corresponds to a lot of very difficult divisions. One of them is religion. the religious Americans of all faiths and backgrounds, including Orthodox Jews and observant Catholics and fundamentalist Protestants, are becoming more and more Republican, and unobservant Americans of all backgrounds are strong supporters of the Democratic Party, and that division has grown bigger and bigger. Here's another division that's gotten bigger. I call it the diploma divide. You see a big division between Americans who didn't go to college or don't have a uh, college degree and Americans who are well-educated. Well-educated Americans these days tend to be more and more democratic. In fact, uh, I always explain this to students. It's been true for 100 years that the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to be a Republican. That is still true. But what's new is that the better educated you are, the more likely you are to be a Democrat. So my students will say, well, what happens if you're well-educated and wealthy? Well, in that case, you're cross-pressured. You're pulled in different directions. If you vote your economic interests, you're going to vote Republican. If you vote your personal values, which tend to be liberal, you're going to vote Democratic. Those are people who are really on the spot, and those are big changes in American life and are going to be very hard to resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh- now, uh, let me date myself a little bit with my final question. I first became involved in politics as as a volunteer in the late 60s. Um, and I know that you have been covering politics for major outlets for the best part of the last half century. Yes. Um, has Donald Trump totally changed the rules and norms that we – always saw in previous elections. Are those gone now as long as he's on the scene? Well, yeah, he's challenged those rules and norms. I wouldn't conclude that he's changed them, but he has challenged them with some success. Look, what Donald Trump did is what conservatives have been dreaming of doing for hundreds of years, since the early days of the republic. Uh, He has led the far right, the extreme right, to power. We've had a lot of parties that were radical and extreme, 
We had the anti-Masonic parties in the early 19th century. We had anti-immigrant parties in the late 19th century. We had the McCarthy movement. Uh, we had the uh, isolationist movements. The, the, the far-right conservatives have always been there, but they have never succeeded in capturing the presidency. Donald Trump did. You, know, you point out correctly that he didn't do it with the majority or even a plurality of the vote, but he did win by the rules. He took them to the mountaintop. That constituency, the extreme right, has been around for a long time, but they have never won the White House. Trump brought them the ultimate prize. He won the White House, and they want it back. That's the problem we're facing right now. Um, well, Professor, uh, it is a joy to talk to you always. Uh, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but, of course, we don't have hours, so I'm going to send it back to David for more questions. David? Yes, and Dr. Stein, just one question, a redirect about the um, recession um, issue that could come up. Now, typically when a recession happens, it leads to job losses, and then also it could lead to um, prices declining, which if we look at this moment in time economically, there's more jobs in America that we have people for, and we have the best unemployment picture we've maybe ever had. And then the big economic obstacle has been um, the prices have gotten higher on many goods. Is it possible that because people, if we went in a recession, people still might have a job and then a few things might lower in price, would that be a possibility that uh, President Biden could break the rules um, with a recession? That is exactly what the Federal Reserve is trying to do. They want a soft landing, they call it. They, want, they, they, they are interested in slowing down the economy, which is going to put more people out of work. The record of 200 years in the United States shows that the only solution to inflation is recession. Recessions are what always work to end the period of inflation. If you remember when Ronald Reagan was first elected after Jimmy Carter, prices were through the roof. The interest rates were over almost 20%. Um, and what happened is we had a terrible recession, 11% unemployment in 1982, and the Republicans suffered a lot of losses. But by 1984, it was mourning in America. Uh, recessions are painful and they're difficult, and millions of people are hurt by recessions, but they may be necessary in order to curb inflation. All, the only thing we can hope for is that the Federal Reserve is cautious enough that they will make sure the recession isn't a very long or deep one. But some kind of recessionary period is likely to be necessary to end inflation. Well, that'd be interesting to see with the job picture, too. Well, uh, Dr. Snyder, we thank you so much for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Um, before you leave us, we know you're writing in The Hill. Uh, we know you're on some social media. Always, As always, tell our listeners where they can read your columns and, and find you on social media. Well, my columns have been running for a couple of years now in The Hill. I write for them twice a month. I just sent them a piece, and I hope they're going to use it next week, about um, the fact that this was like, 2024 is likely to be a very unhappy election for Americans because we have two rather unpopular candidates likely to be the nominees, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Another rerun of, of the 2020 election. I mean, can't we do any better than that? Americans are going to be very disappointed to see those are the only choices. So uh, it remains interesting, but I don't know how we're going to break out of this bind 
that you've quite well described. Yes. Well, we thank you again for coming on the show so much tonight. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank uh, you, yes. sir. Hope to get you back sometime before the election. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. Sure. Right. That was Dr. Bill Snyder, um, I guess currently of the Hill publication, um, longtime contributor on CNN and among other places. That's where most everybody, I guess, became familiar with his work. Catherine may come back on the show here in a minute. So um, if you don't hear us talk about Catherine, uh, it's not us ignoring her, um, but we'll kind of watch the board um, for her in the last few minutes of the show. Um, Tim, we got a few minutes, and uh, the big story early in the week, um, it was actually, I guess, several, uh, several moves in cable news, but the one that really was the story was Fox News has ended terminated the contract of Tucker Carlson, who for a while had been their highest-rated host, the host of their 8 o'clock program. Actually, I've heard that um, there's a 5 o'clock show that actually gets better ratings now, and that's probably a function of time of day. But they have moved on from Tucker Carlson. Um, how surprised were you that that move happened? Well, I was surprised that it happened suddenly as it did, and I'm sure I, I, I guess uh, everyone, including Tucker Carlson, was was uh, surprised about it. Um, but um, obviously, the the Dominion settlement had to have some part in this. After all, he was fired the following Monday morning after this settlement was. Uh, reached late in a week, and that's probably not a coincidence. Um, There's also an ongoing lawsuit filed against Fox News alleging sexism and anti-Semitism from from Carlton's show, especially off-camera by a former female producer there. And then there's these texts. You've seen them from Carlson, which became public... uh, in the Dominion case discovery phase. Uh, some of these were very disparaging toward his colleagues and in particular toward perhaps with all these things, Rupert Murdoch decided to clean house and send a message about who runs the network. It could have been as simple as weighing risk versus reward. We forget Fox is a business and a very large one and that's probably one of the first things they're going to look at. Uh, but you know, David, uh, Murdoch has parted ways with big stars before. Think about Glenn Beck, think about Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly, etc. And Fox has always landed on their feet. But what I'm wondering do you think this might be different? I mean, what if Carlson turns up soon on another network? Would his viewing audience join him there? And what about guys like Donald Trump and our congresswoman, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and others' criticism of Fox, which has now gone through the roof? Do you think this will be different? Hey, that you just gave an idea to me. Maybe they could just give her a show. Uh, contingent upon her leaving no, Congress, and we can get somebody that actually well, works. Um, but yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but let's get back to the the real question at hand and back to reality. Um, 
you know, there is this uh, sense I have that that Fox News is a brand, and they can put any old person on there, and they'll do well. Because when I saw that, you know, I guess their highest-rated show was the 5 o'clock show, some guy named Jesse that apparently was like a bit player on Bill O'Reilly's show, um, he's kind of the host. They have a former MTV DJ. It's actually it called the Five Democrats. Is that what? the five you're talking about? The five. Apparently, it has a better ratings. Yeah. Well, I don't think any person I mentioned, you know, the old VJ uh, on MTV, a Democrat on Fox News, is obviously not bringing in uh, their base audience. Uh, this guy Jesse, if anybody knows his last name, um, you know, it's not their A team. But because of the yeah. time slot, which that's a traditional news viewing slot, that's now the highest rated program. So that tells you that it's just about I'm conservative. I want some news that makes me feel comfortable, that won't challenge my thoughts. And so um, they turn at that time. Now not as many of them turn at 8 o'clock. And I bet if you look at the, the hours – Eight o'clock does a little better than nine. Nine does a little better at ten. Now, is that that Tucker Carlson does better than Sean Hannity? Sean Hannity does better than Laura Ingram. I just think it's that people just kind of drift off the bed because there are audiences rather old. Um, and so I, I think maybe the bet was is he's crossed me too much. I'll put him in his place because we'll replace him, and that'll be fine. And I'll tell you this. If there was not an OAN, if there was not a Newsmax, what other news station there is out there? There's apparently one that Chris Cuomo went to, News Now. Um, if if there weren't these other networks, I'd say this is almost a zero-risk move because they'll just okay, plug the well, next cock have, in there and it'll I, be over. I, I, but as you point I out, there are thing. other networks. Go ahead, Tim. Well, I, I, I have another question to throw into the mix for you to sure. consider while you're talking about this. Before, okay. these other people I named, it was always known why they left. Uh, either either they, you know, the, like Bill O'Reilly with the sexual assault charges and uh, Megyn Kelly left in the contract dispute. Uh, with Tucker Carlson, they, they just uh, made a terse statement about him leaving the network. They didn't say why. That's hanging. They haven't said a word about why he was let go. Well, why was Tucker Carlson let go? Well, I, I think really? it is related to the lawsuit, uh, the Dominion lawsuit. And I'll tell you this. I did find another piece of information out. Apparently, a lot of advertisers will specifically not want to advertise on his show because of his ties to white nationalism. They don't want to have their product or their company attached to him. So he actually is not – I don't know what his you know, – average nightly rating is, but he's actually worth less than he should be because of those well, companies pur- you know, purposely saying, then, I don't want to be on that program. Then I kind of drop into I'm okay with Hannity and Ingram, but I'm not okay with Carlson. Yeah, that but seems kind of weird then, to me. Then it, goes back, then it goes back to the business model risk versus reward, doesn't it? After all, there's another thing to consider. For years, Carlson has been saying just crazy stuff on the air, just crazy stuff, like Joe Biden populating the country with illegals for electoral purposes and things like that. 
And Fox has is, is, is never said or done anything about it. All of a sudden, they do it now. Uh, and, and, and I just wonder if it's a simple business decision that keeping him there is worse than firing him for monetary reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see who they replace him with. But to me, the more interesting question, you brought this up, does he go to another network, and how does that network's ratings do? Because apparently in this past week since he got fired, the ratings for Fox at that 8 o'clock time slot and other time slots have been lower, and the ratings for um, Newsmax, I don't know about OAM, but Newsmax have been higher. So people that were like, I'm going to watch cable, conservative cable uh, TV, at, you know, during the primetime hours, they're going to go ahead and switch over and watch other channels, at least a number of them. And when you that's that the thing, a Trump with thing? channels, a few people can make a big difference. And, and you know, this what? is not three channels anymore. What about the Trump effect? You know, Trump has really stepped up his attacks on them, and some have, so have some of the far-right darlings, you know, like our congresswoman. Is that is that going to have a major effect on Fox? Is it going to drive viewers away that support Donald Trump, for instance? I think it could. Um, and it, it just – and, of course, if – Let's say that a portion of the audience goes to Newsmax, a portion of the audience goes to OAN. Then there'll be three channels closer to equal strength. Then that's going to cause them um, one to not have that one voice that kind of you know have that playbook that kind of tells the right what to do. Two, if they split that audience three ways, likely the top audience might end up being the second largest network because that would provide an opening to probably MSNBC because we could spend uh, three episodes on, you know, CNN's um, ratings was. So yeah, well, you know, for years, to watch. For, for, for years, you know, that's what's been going on with Democratic voters. We are split amongst a bunch of outlets. A lot of our hmm. people like to watch CNN, like we talked about before we went on the air, MSNBC. A lot of them will watch the major news outlets, and then they get on the Internet to do news stuff during the night. Whereas Republican voters, especially the older ones, are right there in a block or have been for years with Fox News. And we could see their strength diluted in the Nielsen ratings and – I just I just wonder if a network like Fox could survive if they weren't the behemoth that they are now. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And of course, cable news and just anything uh, that that focuses on live eyeballs is um, declining because who's going to record the news and watch it at least three hours of it all the time? Um, right. You, know, you record the news and watch it, you know, as a serial episode. Binge watched, you know, five episodes of Sean Hannity. That just doesn't happen. So it is a very different model. Well, we want to thank our guest, um, Bill Snyder, for coming in. Next week on the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Nicholas uh, Dagan-Bloom is going to come on. He is from Hunter College, and he studies um, transportation planning. He's written a new book um, regarding, you know, the nation's 
transportation system and kind of how we got where we are. He actually wrote an article in the conversation that's free to anyone that's kind of uh, just a piece of the ideas in the book. I invite you to look that up. But we're going to talk to Dr. Bloom next week on the kudzu vine about transportation in America. Until then, then the kudzu vine. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around?